Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Speak Up podcast, uh, where we talk about the conversations you need to have to make your goals a reality and live the life that you want to live, have the career that you want to have. And today I have a special guest named Bretton Putter, but only his mom calls him Bretton, and only when she's really annoyed with him. So Brett Pudger, who is British, but living and reporting from Portugal. And I'm excited to talk about Brett because he is both an expert on startups and culture, like startup culture and high growth company culture, because we all know that culture is what allows you to attract the top talent. And it's something that I talk about a lot. If you've hung around me, I talk about the connection between communication and culture but Brett has done a lot of deep work into culture and he has published something called Culture Decks Decoded, Transform Your Culture into a Visible, Conscious and Tangible Asset. And we'll be publishing the Culture Driven Leader very soon, or maybe that's already come out. So Brett, welcome to the Speak Up podcast. Tell us about your path to working with cultures. Laura, thanks very much for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, so I uh, I ran an executive search firm for 16 years out of London, working with startup and high growth tech companies, and we placed C level and VP level candidates anywhere between Moscow and San Francisco, but mainly UK and the US. And um, I was very lucky, uh, frankly, very very lucky to work with three companies almost in a row about five and a half years ago now where the CEOs had a very clear understanding of their culture. And they, so the mandate I was given was to find the right skills and experience, the usual stuff, but also to find candidates that matched the values of the company. And I'd never done this before. It was a much harder search, but when we got to the interview stage and then got to the negotiation stage, it was it was like, wow, it was, it was just completely different, much smoother. Generally, you know, there was one situation where the CEO and the candidate who ultimately got the job were talking. I was involved in the interview and it was as, as if they'd been dancing tango for 10 years. Wow. And it was really, really incredible. And then the impact that those candidates made on the companies, both culturally and from a results perspective, just made my eyes go bang. Okay, I've got to understand this. And that's how I found my passion. I, I started studying um, uh, companies that had defined their culture and done a good job of it and read as much as I could about it. I then started interviewing leaders of high growth companies that had done a really good job of developing their culture. And I set up Culture Gene as a vehicle to help companies define embed and manage their culture. So um, what most companies do is they do some work on values, mission and vision, but then they don't embed it and they don't live it really. It's all, it's all smoke and mirrors. And so with my clients, I take them deeper into the process of embedding their culture and really living it at, from the senior leadership team down. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. And um, I built some software around it. I've been building that over the last 18 months. And which I was very lucky because of this whole, I didn't see COVID coming, but it's positioned me really well to help companies who are now remote and, and working, trying to work out this whole remote thing. So the software is to see if a candidate is a culture fit for the company, or is it something within the company 
to use. Explain how that works. That's super so interesting. It's actually a digital replication of my process. Mm -hmm. And what I would typically do pre-COVID is I would go into the company and you know do workshops with the leadership team and workshops with other members of the of, of various teams in person. And I was actually approached about 18 months ago now. I did work with two remote work companies, so fully remote work companies. And I realized that my process obviously wasn't as effective because they didn't get together much. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I decided, you know, just, I always wanted to build some software so that I could offer services around culture. But I decided, first of all, let me just replicate my process so that I can do this for remote work companies. And that was lucky that I did because we're now incredibly busy and, and you know, our process takes you along the journey of defining and embedding and managing your culture. Very cool. So how do you define culture? So culture is hard to define because it's this largely invisible subconscious and intangible amorphous beast that lives below the surface of our consciousness for the most part. And the best leaders bring it to the surface and the best leaders make it conscious, tangible and visible for us. And that's my job really is to help companies do that. But for me, the best description of company culture is the way we do things around it. And that's very broad deliberately because it impacts everything. Culture impacts all corners of, of, of the company and all functions, all processes. And so essentially, if you think about culture, it's, it's learned over time when you start a business and you and your co-founders get together, then you work out what works and that becomes embedded. And then you hire some people and hopefully you've done a good job of hiring those initial people and that becomes embedded. And so you learn and so your culture forms by default. And essentially culture is this random combination of good and bad behaviors, norms, rituals, principles, procedures, policies, uh, communication styles, the way we work around here. So it's this ever moving feast of things that changes on an ongoing basis. So for me, the, the foundations of culture are mission, vision, and values. And okay. if you've got a mission, but no vision or vision and no mission, that's fine. I prefer mission and vision and values. That gives you your stable foundation on which to build your culture upon. Is it expensive to build a culture? It's not as expensive as not building a culture. Yeah, <laughs> good one. Good one. Well, tell me a story about a culture transformation you've worked with. So one of my clients is a solar operations and maintenance business. And the CEO, um, a lady named Nicola, had worked on her culture. But like a lot of leaders, she understood, had this intuition that culture was important mm -hmm. and defined the values and did a little bit of stuff around that. It may be an initiative around employee of the month and then didn't know what to do next. So we met at a networking event and got talking. And basically what I did is I said, okay, you have values, but your values are open to interpretation. You know, what does teamwork mean? I, and human beings interpret for themselves first and then everybody else second. Mm -hmm. So what you do, what we did is we went through a process with a team of using my software of defining what I call the expected behaviors against those values. And so we, the, this process 
helps you understand what the current actual culture is and what the aspirational culture is and the gap between the two. And then we, we use that to then define the expected behaviors. And the expected behaviors give your team, your team now know what's expected of them because these are the behaviors that we as a company accept. And also these are the behaviors that we do not accept. There's alignment of behavior across the organization. It encourages self-management, it encourages accountability. Having these behaviors is a really powerful tool. And what we did is we defined five behaviors per value. And then we created a culture at email address where we asked all employees to send examples of their colleagues living those values. Wow, that's very cool. And then what we did is we asked them to say what they did, which value and behavior it was living, what the impact to the company or the individual or the customer was. And basically, there are so many great stories of people doing great things in lots of companies that nobody knows about. Mm -hmm. And the best way of communicating a value is by telling a story. Right. So now Nicola tells these stories once a month. She shares these stories with the leadership team on a weekly basis at the leadership team meeting. They share those stories down into the organization. So we create this cascading effect of information and knowledge. Then what we did is we looked at all, the, all of the processes. So to give you an example of onboarding. Mm -hmm. So onboarding was get people productive as quickly as possible. Always. And, <laughs> and actually that's fundamentally the wrong thing to do. <laughs> Great. Tell us. Fix it. If you, obviously you want productivity, but actually if you do the following, if you do the, the important things first, you get the productivity. So just picture a new person joining a company. They've got huge anxiety. They're stressed. They've come from maybe the height of their previous role to this new environment. They don't know the culture. They don't know anybody. It's a high stress environment. So what we created was an onboarding process that removes anxiety. It develops trust and build relationships. You help that new joiner understand the invisible currents of the way we do things around here by giving them a buddy and creating a buddy system. We allow the new joiner, we create in each case, we create a scenario where the new joiner can demonstrate their strengths really quickly. Not just do stuff, but demonstrate their strengths because that gives them the confidence. And as a company, we're working on creating an environment of psychological safety where the new joiner feel they can be themselves. And that then creates productivity. And Absolutely. This is awesome. And what we then did is we turned the onboarding into pre-boarding. So pre-boarding starts at day minus 30. Okay. So 30 days before the new hire starts, they get an email from their hiring manager saying, uh, you know, their direct line manager saying, you know, super pumped you're joining us, you know, really great. He has a couple of things for you to read. Then at day minus 15, the HR manager will say, you know, really, really cool to have you on board. We've got a couple of events coming up, put them in your diary. At day minus 10, everybody who interviewed that person will send them an email saying, super, super pumped that you're coming to join us. If you need anything, just call me or ping me or email me. Day minus five, day minus two, day minus day minus two is when the when the 
or day minus five, minus five, I can't remember. Day minus five is when the buddy contacts the, contacts the new joiner and says, I'm your buddy. I'm here to help you understand the culture and, and, and learn the ropes. Day minus two, day minus one, zero. Then they join the company and then day plus one, day plus two, day plus three, and so on. And so we create this amazing onboarding experience for people in an environment, you know, operations and maintenance in solar farms is really, you know, pretty, in some cases, basic, you know, like do the job. And, and these people are blown away by what they're experiencing. Blown away. Amazing. It sounds like by the time you start, you already feel like that anxiety which is, of course, terrible for communication also, is very much mitigated, if not completely disappeared. Exactly, because we're doing, we're, we're focusing on building the trust and building the relationships. And that's, it's all about the communication. If you get the communication working between people pre-boarding, then that person feels, okay, at least I know five, six, seven people. I can refer to these people. They, they would be typically blank screens on a Zoom call. Now right, right. The thing, the most important thing to remember is that onboarding is the first representation of your company's culture. So if you do a bad job, your culture gets a bad rep from the beginning. That so we change, cool. we change all processes. So we look at every single process and we weave the values and behaviors into every single process. The hiring process, the customer success process, the partnering process, the uh, channel process. And so to give you another example, the uh, hiring process, if you think about the candidate touch points mm -hmm. of a hiring process, they, they will at some stage during this process, look at your website, they look at LinkedIn, they will receive a job ad, they look at a job ad, they may receive a job description, they may talk to, talk to a recruiter, they will then be interviewed, and they go through onboarding, probation, and then review. And so those are all the touch points. And what we do is we then we change the way the website looks. It's not just the career section where we talk about the culture. We talk about the culture on the homepage. We talk about the culture on the sales page. We talk about the culture and what's cool about it on the blog. We then give the recruiter a cheat sheet. So the recruiter reads from the cheat sheet about the culture. The values and the mission and the vision are described in the job ad. They describe the gain in the job description. We create a values-based interview process so that the candidate is interviewed based on the fit with the values of the company, not with the fit of the culture of the company, because that's impossible. Oh, wow. Great insight. And then we build it into the onboarding, the probation period, and so on. So it's every single process in the organization gets reworked and remodeled based on the values and culture of the business. So why is it impossible to, to hire for culture fit? Every single CEO or leader of any type that I've asked this question, the following question, has failed to answer it. Ah, okay. Please accurately describe your company culture. Really? They will waffle a little bit about values if you're lucky, mm -hmm. and they may throw in the mission and vision, but that's where it ends. Is it because it's not really a priority for the leadership? No, it's because it's impossible to define accurately define a company's culture. There's too many moving pieces. It's too dynamic. Ooh. You know, company culture is invisible, subconscious, and tangible for most people. It's amorphous. It happens below the surface. 
and it is a random combination of good and bad and or bad behaviors, rituals, norms, habits, communication processes, beliefs, and so on. Mm-hmm. And when you're 10 people, your culture is different to when you're 50, which is different to when you're 150. So if you're hiring for culture fit, mm-hmm. it's nonsense. It's, it's just two words put together to really put lipstick on the pig of gut instinct. <laughs> so hiring for culture is putting lipstick on the pig. It's specifically putting lipstick on the pig of gut instinct. Of gut instinct. Okay. okay. Because gut instinct is, is yours. It's completely biased. It's unscalable and it's unreliable. And it ultimately ends up in you not building a diverse team because you're hiring based on the feeling of, can I work with this person or not? Do I like this person or not? Not do they have the same values as me, irrespective of who they are, irrespective of whether I like them or not. Wow, that is so cool. You know, I was, sometimes I like to ask people to share an unpopular opinion. And I would say that was definitely one because everybody talks about hire for culture fit. Yeah, and that is, can't, that's not going to happen. Hire for value fit. And so is there, like, if I'm a, let's, let's take a look at the candidate side. How do I know when I'm hiring, everybody seems so nice when I'm hiring, when I'm interviewing is what I really mean to say. What is your advice for people wanting to know really what the culture is like when they're being interviewed and things are not always as upfront as we might like? So this is, this isn't an easy question to answer because most companies don't really know what their culture is. So, you know, that's just the way it is. But actually, if I was a candidate right now, what I'd be asking is I'd ask each person I interviewed exactly the same question. Tell me why you work here. Tell me what the one thing you would change about this company is. And tell me the negatives about your company culture. Oh, wow. That's another very bold question. That's awesome. And I would ask it of everybody I interviewed. Mm -hmm. And then I would ask them, tell me how you are building your culture for remote or hybrid work. Oh, that was, that's a definite topic. Yes. Let's talk about that. You must remember that two out of those four people may lie. But two out of those four people probably won't. And they don't want to tell you that this place is a hideous beehive of backstabbing politics. (laughs) Because actually, you're going to work with them. So if they lie to you, they probably have some moral. They don't know why they're working there, but they have some moral instinct to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. If everybody lies to you, then it's really tough and you probably have to... You know, just chalk that one up to really, really, really well, well delivered lies. Mm-hmm. But actually, for me, those four questions are really important. But but this new, the fourth question is new. I would, it's a question I would bring up because if you are not building a culture where I, I want to work hybrid. I have a wife and two children. A wife mm-hmm. and two children. I want to spend time with them. I'm going to work hard. I love what I do, but I need that flexibility. And if you are not going to create an environment where I don't feel like a second-class citizen, in other words, if you create an environment where when I work remotely, I feel like a second-class citizen, I do not want to join your company. And a second-class citizen happens 
to me, if I work remotely and I'm not in, not included or do not feel included in the relevant decision-making, I'm not heard. I feel like a second-class citizen if I do not experience the work and the culture in the same way as you do in the office. I feel like a second-class citizen if the I have to advocate for my work and I have to sell myself harder than I should. I feel like a second-class citizen if I feel like I'm being overlooked for promotion. I feel like a second-class citizen if the systems are not in place for me to work properly. And what that means is moving from synchronous communication to asynchronous communication because I have a wife and two kids. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And when somebody breaks a glass downstairs by mistake, I'm dropping everything and going downstairs. I don't care what the VP of engineering thinks. Mm -hmm. I have to go and help, etc. So if that capability for me to respond asynchronously in a natural way isn't designed to the system, I don't want to work in your company. And this is going to be the new thing. What used to happen is that Google and Facebook used to chuck millions and millions of dollars at creating these gorgeous plush campuses with free food and yes. you know, chefs. Cappuccino, chefs. The works, you know, I mean, sleep pods and whatever, okay? That's gone now. The most important thing is how you build your culture for a hybrid environment. That is the question. That's, I mean, I think that's the defining issue from, from before today, but definitely from this day forward, because even before we were hybrid, even before we were remote, back in the day, in the dark ages, when everybody actually went to an office and he had the corporate headquarters in New Jersey, and he had 50 offices across the country or maybe 100 offices around the world, it was kind of a cliche that people that the further or the less contact you had with the headquarters, you felt like you say the second class citizen, you feel left out. So are, are these like processes that you can implement so that people don't feel like second class citizens? Is it on the burden of the leader? Hey, you've got to make sure everybody on your team feels like first class. Like what is what if you're talking to like we have a lot of people in our audience who are managing directors, vice presidents of very large companies and small companies, and they're not the senior lead, they're not the CEO. What can they do to make sure that their teams feel heard, understood, and valued? So the real I think first of all, they've got to have I call this the the, the we're on the moon conversation. <laughs> Do tell. We were on earth pre-COVID and we ran around in our jeans and our t-shirts and we had frappuccinos and cappuccinos and gravity did its thing and the sun rose and set and etc. We heard that the earth was going to be obliterated by a COVID asteroid and we managed to escape and we got to the moon. Okay. The earth was not obliterated, but the earth was really messed up. It's never going to be the same again ever. We're not going back to the way it was. And you have to have this conversation with your team and say, I don't have all the answers, but I know we're not going back. And that means we're going to build a culture or an environment that is suitable for the future of work in our company. Because I signed an explicit agreement to pay you a certain, a certain amount of money, but we made an implicit agreement to work in a certain way. 
our implicit agreement was we would build an environment where you could fulfill your potential. And you could grow and do well in this organization. And as a result of us all succeeding, life would be good. And now that's all changed. So I have to build an environment where I can fulfill the implicit agreement, which is culture, essentially. And I have to adapt my culture. And in order to do that as a leader of a hybrid environment, I have to realize that I will always, in most companies, not all companies, some leaders will have will have the ability to say, you will come in on Mondays and Wednesdays, or you will come in on, you know, but most companies mm-hmm. will have to be fully flexible. So that means that I will always have people working remotely. Correct. Absolutely. Which means I have to design a remote first environment. I have to consider those people. Otherwise, if it's not a remote first environment, they end up feeling like second class citizens. Mm-hmm. So what that means in a real simple example is if there are three people working remotely and there are five other people in the office that day and there is an eight-person meeting, the five people do not walk into the boardroom and congregate in the boardroom while the other three people dial in. Everybody sits at their desk and dials in. Okay. Then we're on an equal playing field. Right. Then I don't have to, there's no delay or lag to talk. I can hear everybody. I don't have this terrible speaker system in the middle of the, in the middle of the table not picking up my, my voice. Oh, that's so annoying. So annoying. That is a the, great... people, the people who are dialing in feel like second-class citizens. Right. Absolutely. If not like lower than that. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that would be. Exactly. <laughs> Coach class, whatever it is. But, <laughs> um, but so as a leader, you've got to create... It's, it's not always easy, but you've got to now be thinking about how do I create a level playing field? How do, how do I create an environment where I, where everybody feels included mm-hmm. and nobody, there's no advantage or disadvantage to working in the office or working remote? And one of the keys of that, which a lot of leaders aren't going to like, is that leadership should not be in the office all the time. Okay. Because if the leadership are in the office all the time, people are going to congregate there and it's going to become a little fiefdom. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So there should be no disadvantage. It should be like the same one way or the other. Level playing field. Love that. So I've got a question for you about uh, based on an experience I had with a client recently. She works with a startup international and she says our culture is so good but it's really good for uh, high performers. And she felt like all the freedoms in the culture were having, plus the COVID, like like people used to be in the office and then they went to work home. She felt like the culture was letting some people not perform at the level that was expected. Like they were falling through the cracks because they were, didn't have supervision, but I don't know. What do you think? What is the relationship between good performance on an individual basis or team basis and the culture? It's a little bit harder now because there are, there are a number of elements to this. A lot of companies are experiencing incredibly high, high performance right now, mm-hmm. high productivity. Mm-hmm. And it's, I call it false, the false productivity. It's a lie. Whoa, the reason, it, the reason it's a lie is because I don't have to go anywhere. I mm-hmm. can't. 
I don't have to get in my car and drive to work for 45 minutes stuck in traffic or get on the tube or a bus. Mm -hmm. I literally get out of bed and I walk to my office. I then have nothing to do. I can't go and, you know, right. go and get drunk with my friends and right. have a hangover the next morning. I can't get on a plane and go and visit anybody. So right now, people are working 10, 11, 12, 13. Yes, insane, insane. It's so and true. That, that it's false productivity because half of those hours are spent on Zoom, wasting time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the other half of those hours, seven hours, are actually working, but rarely putting it in there. Right. And so people are going to burn out from this. But essentially, when we go back to what the new normal will be, where there is a hybrid environment and we're all vaccinated and it's not such a big deal traveling, then people are going to be going, okay, well, now I'm going to let my hair down. And, and if you want to see, you're going to see productivity fall off a cliff. Wait, let me just say to the audience, you heard it here first on the Speak Up podcast. So listen closely and take notes. Go on, Brett. This is fascinating. So this is the first thing is generally productivity is going to fall off a cliff because people are going to become people again and they're not going to be locked in. They're also going to be able to evaluate whether your culture is right for them because at right now they just want their job. Right. Frankly, they're going to bend over backwards and do whatever they have to do. But when it opens back up again, people are going to look around and go, oh my God, this is a terrible environment. I'm, I'm out of here. And there are lots of options. True. And they will have a lot more confidence to leave. In terms of productive people, I think, so you could call me a high productive person, but right now with a one-year-old and a three-year-old and, and a wife who's not taking well to the second lockdown, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I empathize. <laughs> I'm not delivering what I would typically deliver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's just the reality. Not everybody can deliver pr productively right now. This is the most stressful anxiety situation. The, the, the closest you get to this situation is war. Exactly, exactly. Where you could, so where you could walk outside and be shot. Here exactly. you could walk outside, get a cough and die. Mm -hmm. Or call somebody else to. Exactly, but it's, this is like war. Right. And we're not used to this. So as leaders, because we're humans and we adapt, we're going, oh, okay, this is now the new norm. We're fine. We're, you know, we should be more productive. But, but hold on. Have you considered somebody's home environment? Have you considered their mental health state? Have you considered the, how close they are to burnout? Have you considered how lonely they are? Have you considered that they're living with three other people in a flat share and two of those people don't work at the moment? So they're just partying and smoking dope all the time. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought of that scenario. But definitely. What do you do? People with your spouse home and your kids home and your mother-in-law home has definitely been stressful. Exactly. So there's, that's the first thing. The second thing is the you monitoring. If you're a control freak, if you're a micromanager right now, <laughs> you will burn your people out. Absolutely. So if you're a micromanager or you're, somebody on your team is a micromanager, I highly recommend you get them a coach yesterday mm -hmm. because yes. remote or hybrid work is not designed for micromanagement. It's about trust. It's about results-based leadership outcomes. It's not about hours. It's about outcomes. And it's about creating the structure and environment for your people to deliver. And it's about understanding that what you used to do in, a, in an office-based environment is you used to keep 
things under control and you would hear via the grapevine if that project wasn't on track or whatever and you would okay let's go and deal with it mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. can't hear there's no grapevine now osmosis is gone so true osmosis was a critical part of an office-based culture and in actually in relation to my books i did publish my second book which is called own your culture mm -hmm. and in that book i use warren buffett's quote which is you only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. I love that. <laughs> yes. And, and actually the tide's gone out and they're right. and 90% of CEOs are swimming naked right now. But I don't think that people are seeing that. But that, that's because they're dealing with the anxiety of COVID. Right. They're not yeah. realizing what a bad job these leaders are doing of their culture because their culture is degrading. Their yes. culture is a year old. Yeah. And they're not, and it's not going back. But right now, there's so much pressure that people are not thinking, oh, my God, this is terrible. I need to leave. They're thinking, oh, my God, everything's terrible. I need a job. Right, right, right. So it's just a false situation. Completely false sense of security. Time. Yeah. So, yeah. So micromanagers really don't succeed in this environment. All right, guys, you heard it. You got to de delegate, set up accountability. You can't control the outcomes you can have, you never could but now it's a, it's dangerous to your health to even try to do this and i think uh, you've added so much insight into how people can prepare for the hybrid work world and that level playing field and thinking about rules of engagement because i i want to work you know it's great when senior leadership of a big company gets on board on the culture train and really drives that home and i you know the larger companies that have been around a while if they've been around a while a lot of times it's because the culture is at least decent but it's like but they're still like cogs in this enormous machine and so how do they create like a don't you believe in a, like a subculture within a culture you know where working in finance with anna is like amazing because she is a spectacular leader versus, you know, somebody in a different part of this, these big companies. Yeah, so subcultures form naturally and there's nothing you can do about it. You, you subcultures form around geography, they form around function, they form, you, in the good old days, you used to get the smoking subculture where, where <laughs> three or four people would go and smoke outside and that would be their little subculture. You've got the, oh, um, the, the people who go for a drink in the bar on Friday subculture. But you've got you know subcultures around functions. So salespeople are different to engineers. Engineers have the similar you, you like um, educational experience. Salespeople don't. Marketing and so on. So subcultures are normal and they mm -hmm. should form. The most important thing about subcultures is is to have a really strong, well-defined, well-embedded set of values mm -hmm. across the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because you know if you if if I go now. And I say, okay, I'm going to go and expand. I want to grow my team to 50 people in Japan. And English is the first language. That's our culture. That's going to fail in Japan. Right, right, right. You know, that, that's just the reality. You're not, it's going to be hard to get 50 English speakers first language <laughs> right. first in Japan. That have all the skills that you need. Exactly. 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 So you have to be adaptable. But from a values perspective, you have to be consistent. And it's because as soon as one of those subcultures go bad, it not only is it toxic for the people in the subculture, but they obviously, it permeates everything else. And what do you think is what keeps 
senior leaders from living the values? Is, is it because they're so busy doing other things? Is it because they really don't care? You know, when you work, like, what is it that keeps a company from embracing this? Because it is hard, but it's not like, you know, crazy mission impossible. It's something, I think the payoff for the investment you make in improving your culture is just like a huge uh, ROI there. I think leaders, conceptually leaders would love to build strong, functional, high-performing cultures. Problem is, is they don't know how to do it. And that's why I wrote my second book, Own Your Culture, is okay. to actually give, give, a, give a, a structure to how to do this. If you think about, there, so culture is this in, difficult thing to get your, your hands into, but actually embedding culture is relatively easy. If you think about it as a framework, there are only six ways to embed company culture. Oh, do you mind sharing some of them? Sure. How you reward and recognize people, mm-hmm. what you measure and pay attention to, how you high fire and promote, mm-hmm. how you train, mentor, and educate how you behave in crisis situations and where you invest and allocate your resources. So let me give you a rundown as an example of this. I'm the CEO of a company and I say, customer support, our customers are really important to us. Our customer support team, really important. I say that, but when there is an issue of bad behavior in the customer support team, there's a mini crisis or an issue, I wipe it under the, I ignore it. Mm -hmm. I don't want the hassle. The customer support team come to me and they say they need some new software. And instead I put that resource to the sales team. Mm -hmm. The customer support team come to me and they say, we need to hire a really good manager. And I hire a substandard manager because I'm not prepared to invest. Mm -hmm. The customer support team do not get rewarded and recognized. I don't measure, I don't pay attention to it. So essentially what happens is leaders are just human beings yes, and they don't have a framework for how to think about company culture. Mm-hmm. Who are you rewarding and recognizing? Who did you reward and recognize last week? And did you reward them for behaviors against a value or not? Right. Who did you promote in the last six months? And did they demonstrate the values and behaviors that we require from the company? Mm-hmm. Because if you if you reward and recognize somebody who's a backstabbing politician, you are going to encourage everybody else in the organization to be backstabbing politicians. Exactly, exactly. And it if really you goes to skin in the game, <laughs> like exactly. If you behave, if 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 there's bad behavior in an organization, and you ignore it, you get the culture you ignore. You get that bad behavior because it's allowed. So leaders don't have a framework to think about this because nobody's gone and really opened the black box of company culture, which is what I've tried to do in Own Your Culture. So it's Own Your Culture. We've got to wrap this up. Unfortunately, it's just been so fascinating. Is that only for CEOs to read? Is that your audience? No, no. It's, it's, for, it's, it's, a, it's really a very tactical book. So, so it's anybody who's interested in company culture can, can read it. First of all, understand 
why company culture is important. Then they understand what the basics are. So values, mission, and vision. And then they understand the, the, the only, there are two ways you can, you can impact your culture negatively. One, by your CEO, your leadership team behaving like idiots. Two, hiring idiots. <laughs> Which happens so, every day. Yeah. So what we do is, what I do in the book is I explain how not to do that. Mm -hmm. So how to okay. build the right hiring processes. Then if you do hire an idiot, how to get rid of them. And I call them brilliant jerks or bad hires. Mm -hmm. And then how to embed, how to think about diversity and inclusion, how to think about remote work. So, and in each chapter, there are between five and 10 actual examples from the interviews I've done mm -hmm. of the leaders who've done a good job of embedding their culture. And so you can literally open the book on page, whatever it is, and go, oh, there's an example. Let me try that today. Awesome. I love that. So actionable. Very actionable, very tactical. It's not It's not that strategic because there's a lot of great books out there written on strategic company mm -hmm. culture. And it's normally a book written about a company that's been around for 20 or 25 years and you don't know what happened in the trenches. Mm -hmm. You just see this beautiful polished thing at the end of it versus right. the, 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 the hard graft of learning. And you know, one, one, of the, one of the leaders I interviewed is a guy named uh, Martin Ruring from a company called Gideon in the Netherlands. And one of their values was transparency. Mm -hmm. And he was randomly out of the blue asked a question and, the, and the, one, of his, one of the people in the company said, Martin, what do you and the leadership team talk about at the Monday morning meeting? And Martin thought to himself, if we're going to be transparent, I guess we're really not. So he went back to that person and he said, can I ask you to come and sit in on the leadership team meetings for the next six months? Oh, wow. The okay. only thing I require of you is that you write up a report about the leadership team meeting and share it with the company. Very cool. Very cool. There are lots of these really interesting examples in the book of how leaders make mistakes and learn and mm -hmm. how leaders, you know, adapt to reality of, of, of life in the trenches. Absolutely. And I just think we have such a, I mean, that people are just dealing with so much today with, um, there's so many layers of complexity and stress and anxiety and, and productivity demands. Brett, this has been fascinating, very helpful, lots of actionable items. I would like for you to close this. I would like for you to um, tell people how they can reach out to you. I, I know you have your website is, I believe, Culture Code, no, Culture Gene, not code, Culture Gene. I don't remember the ending, but you tell, tell people how they can find you. Sure, sure. So, so people can find my books on Amazon. They can also reach me via www.culturegene, which is culture, G-E-N-E dot A-I. And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. And actually, if uh, Laura, if any of your listeners want to reach out to me directly, I'm a student of culture. I love talking about company culture. I like learning and listening. I love hearing great new stories about what, what people are doing. And I make 20% of my time available to do this. Just oh my gosh. Well, my, I can tell you, I have the best audience ever. Super smart, super smart, highly conscientious people that are listening to this. Those are the people that are in my tribe. So uh, thank you so much. I know that several of them are going to reach out. They always do to different ones, buy different books. I want to get a copy of Own Your Culture because 
I want to find out because a lot of people ask me and I do culture work, but in a very, in a limited, like how the, on the communication aspect, like if the way you talk to people should be reflective of your Absolutely. values. And, and I love the example of transparency because that's a, that's a value in many companies. A lot of most clients, almost all, I think all clients send me their values and now I'm going to be more testing them. How do you live those values when I'm working with them? So thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and um, maybe we'll do it again sometimes. Have a great right. evening in Portugal. <laughs> thank you, Laura. I really enjoyed it and uh, have a great day. Thank you.